Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it's a warm December day, um, a few days before Christmas, actually. And um, what you're about to hear is Class 1, Part 1 of an extension class I did at Loyola Marymount University. I was invited to put together a class on integrating Buddhist practices into everyday life. Uh, the class went for four Thursdays, 7.30 to 9.30, and it went from September 28th to October 19th, 2006. The classes are separated into two parts because we took uh, a break, let everybody stretch their legs and give me a chance to sit down and rest my voice. When I give a class, I don't normally use uh, notes or books or visual aids. I get in front of the class and speak extemporaneously. So what you're about to hear is that kind of presentation. Um, and there were questions, of course, and you'll be able to hear some of the questions and not be able to hear other of the questions because I only mic'd myself. I have a small digital audio recorder, and I just put the mic on my lapel. And uh, you'll, because of my answer, understand probably what the question was. I haven't edited uh, this, this, these talks other than um, sort of cleaning up the beginning and the end. Um, but all of it is uh, what you would have heard if you had taken that class. So, four classes, eight parts. This is class one, part one of an extension class I gave at Loyola Marymount University. The title was Integrating Buddhist Practices into Everyday Life. Okay, well, let me start a little bit. Uh, let me start with me and tell you why I'm here, why they invited me to speak, why I dress the way I do. Um, I was born a Lutheran a long time ago, and I went to high school in the 60s, and I became an agnostic because it was important to question all authority and not trust anyone over 30. It may actually apply today as well. And then um, I turned 30, and I realized I'd be dead soon because anybody over 30 is soon to die. And I didn't have a religion, and so I bought a book by Houston Smith, World Religions, and read that book and read the chapter on Buddhism twice. It just made so much sense to me. Um, and then I got another book, the phone book, and found a meditation center. And uh, my first teacher was an American, a Westerner, um, who was going to UCLA. His name uh, was Shinzen Young. Actually, his name is Shinzen Young. He's still alive and well. And so my introduction to Buddhism was through an American. And he had gone to Japan to study Japanese, and then he became ordained in the Shingon tradition, and he came back, and he was the vice abbot at the center where I now live. And so it was an interesting introduction. Now, he would speak uh, on Mondays, and I would just show up every Monday and listen to him talk. And I couldn't understand what the heck he was talking about, but I sort of knew it was true, and I wanted to see the world the way he explained it. So he said if that was the case, what I needed to do was meditate. 
And, and to be honest with you, I really didn't like to meditate because it was so uncomfortable. My body just didn't want to sit quiet for very long. And my mind became agitated almost immediately. And I kept thinking, why am I doing this? What's the point of just sitting quietly and doing nothing? You know, I should be doing my laundry or something, something important. And, um, but I continued to meditate so I could listen to him speak and hopefully one day understand what the heck he was talking about. Hi. This is from 107. 107, Buddhist, uh, yeah, please, welcome. No, it's very difficult. Let me give you one of my cards. We just, we just began. I'm speaking about uh, why I'm here and my journey. There you Thank go. You. Thank you. Oh, and I should, I guess. And wh- what is your name? Okay, let me just mark you down as present here. Good. Okay. So, I kept meditating. I kept listening. I, I bought my first Buddhist book, which was the Dhammapada, an ancient text. Um, didn't come with commentary, just came with the verses, 423 verses. And it, even that made sense, not to the point it does today, but it, you know, it just there was a certain amount of truth and authenticity that I um, found in that text. It was just amazing. And uh, so I continued to practice. This was 1980, and I continued to practice. And then uh, in 1994, I decided to uh, go for ordination. Uh, my, my teacher at that time was Dr. Havan Polaratanasara. Easy for me to say. And uh, he uh, was a Theravada elder from Sri Lanka. So I started with an American. He was my Dharma teacher pretty much for the first two years. And then I wanted to, to sort of hang out with an Asian Buddhist who was born in a Buddhist country, who actually became ordained at the age of 12, to see the differences, to see the worldview, to see that kind of thing. So he and I studied together, oh, 16, 17 years until he died in 2000. So um, I was fortunate to find a teacher who was willing to... Uh, Accept me as a student, and uh, but he was the one that encouraged me to maybe look into getting ordained. Uh, he said, "You know, it's a wonderful opportunity. You know, there aren't too many people ordained in America, and and we can do it for you." And so I thought to myself, "Well, what does uh, an American Buddhist monk do? You know, uh, what kind of work do we do? Do we just you know work in the garden, and meditate, and read these esoteric texts?" And uh, so I, I courageously started the ordination process. In 1994, I uh, became ordained as a novice monk, uh, quit my job, and moved into the meditation center. And, and they, what, what they did for me is they said, we'll give you a room, and we'll give you a little money each month, and we'll give you some health insurance. And then and we want you to work for us. And, and what that means is, well... Right now, we'd like you to work in the residential office. We have 30 residents who live at the meditation center where I live. And you need to screen them. And if there are empty rooms, you need to find people. And so I sort of did that for a while. Uh, mow the lawn, I did that for a while. And then uh, I eventually started to teach uh, a class on Wednesday nights, um, which I still do. And, and so that continues. And then I, then I lead meditation on Friday nights. And that continues. I take care of the dogs at our center and the fish. 
Um, and uh, there's a cat that one of the residents had that uh, became mine. So I have a cat that I take care of too. So I'm a busy fellow. Um, but on top of all that, uh, I answered the phone. And, and that's given me more work than I could have ever imagined. And the first phone call I answered came from a, a man named Deacon Szymanski. And he was a, um, uh, a Catholic chaplain at L.A. County State Prison for Men in Lancaster, California. 4,300 men behind bars. And he had found my name through a, a newspaper article uh, and uh, he asked if I'd be willing to go to Lancaster, California and teach the prisoners about Buddhism. And I was shocked. I didn't think Buddhists went to prison. But we're there. And so for a year, I took my motorcycle and rode it to Lancaster, California, which actually is like riding right into hell because it's hotter in the summer, colder in the winter, and the wind never stops blowing. It's a very uncomfortable place. And then you go into this prison, and I had never been in a prison before. And, you know, you've got the guards and you have the prisoners, and it's all about power. There aren't any women or children to speak of in this culture, and so there were no soft and round edges. And the guards really, you know, look at you as being sort of a hindrance, because now they have to watch out for you, too. And I can remember the very first time I went up there, I'm sort of trying to find my way to the chapel, in the high security section, and one of the guards looks at me and says, why are you here? I said, oh, I'm the Buddhist volunteer. And he looked at me and said, hell, next we're going to have astrologers coming up here. So he, he wasn't really uh, excited about me ending up there. And they gave me this little thing that looks like a garage door opener. It has a button on it. And they said, okay, if anything goes down, just press the button and we'll come and save you. And I'm going, oh, man, you know. Thankfully, uh, I was, uh, nothing happened. So it was an uneventful year that I spent in uh, Lancaster once a week. I got another phone call. Mr. Noy Russell, Central Juvenile Hall, downtown Los Angeles, Eastlake. Reverend Kusla, would you like to come down and talk to the kids about meditation and Buddhism? I think they would find it useful. And I said, well, are there any Buddhists in, in juvenile hall? He said, well, we haven't found any, but, but there are a lot of kids that really feel uncomfortable. And I'm thinking meditation might be useful for them. Why don't you come down and see how you feel about it? So I, I went down to Central Juvenile Hall, which actually turns out to be the old mental hospital that was connected to USC Medical Center. And I gave my first presentation in a high-risk offenders unit. And these were guys who had killed somebody or raped somebody or carjacked somebody. This was sort of the, you know, the most unskillful of them all. And I walked into this large room, and there they all were sitting quietly. And I felt immediately comfortable because every one of them had my hair cut. <laughs> and so we had that in common right away. And then the first thing out of my mouth was, is anybody here suffering? And every hand went up. So I knew I had him. This is my audience. And uh, I did that for five years. And I found other volunteers to help me. And we had programs to teach them yoga and Aikido and Tai Chi. And I talked about Buddhism. And then I found some people to teach meditation. So we had a whole group going down and 
hopefully inspiring, but that may, if we didn't inspire, at least we gave these kids options maybe that they didn't have before. Most of them hadn't heard about Buddhism. Some had heard about Tai Chi and Aikido because they'd seen martial arts movies. Uh, I can remember one small boy, he was like 10 years old, and he said, uh, do you float? You know, I see some of these movies and the guys float. I said, only in swimming pools. He was really disappointed to hear that, you know. So I have no uh, supernatural powers to speak of. So I did that for five years, and then I got another phone call from the mayor of Garden Grove. And he said to me, would you be willing to do the keynote presentation at the mayor's prayer breakfast? And I said, well, you know, as a Buddhist, I don't pray, but I do eat breakfast. Is that okay? And he said, that's fine. So I went down and gave my presentation, and the chief of police was in the audience. And his office contacted me less than a week later asking if I would consider being a Buddhist police chaplain for the Garden Grove Police Department. And so I thought to myself, gosh, I've been behind bars now for six years. Wouldn't it be cool to go and see why everybody ended up behind bars? So for the last five years, I've been a volunteer, ride-along, Buddhist police chaplain in Garden Grove. And, and my job is to get into the car with the officer who hasn't met me before. Uh, the sergeant or the lieutenant assigns me to a car. And then we ride around Garden Grove for like 11 hours together and go on all the calls together. And um, I'm there to support him. I'm also there to offer you know, care and counsel to anyone who might want to talk. Most of the stuff I do is just simply sit down and shut up and listen to people talk to me because it's hard to be a human being. So I've seen that now behind bars, but I've also seen it in just the general community. Uh, and um, I'm also at UCLA, and I'm the Buddhist chaplain on campus at UCLA, and we have a Buddhist club that meets every Tuesday in the Catholic Center. The Catholics were so kind to let us use their chapel on campus. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but back in the 60s, they had something called the Second Vatican Council. And in the Second Vatican Council, they decided that Buddhism was okay. And so since then, Buddhists and Catholics have been in dialogue. And today, it's... Thank you. He's open like forever. So you just go over there with your card, make sure it's filled out, and then he'll give you can I ask you a quick question? I just had a knee replacement and I have a handicap placard. I think I'm okay with a placard. Right, you are. So we're in the Catholic Center because of the Second Vatican Council. <clears throat> and uh, there, there's been a, a, a local Los Angeles Buddhist-Catholic dialogue going on since 1989. And my teacher, Dr. Rata was one of the co-founders with Monsignor Royal Vatican, who started that. And I've been part of it now for many years as well, and have actually done a web page for them, which is on, if you go to um, BuddhistCatholic.org, you will find that web page. Um, and so we have the Buddhist Club, I'm part of the URC, the University of Religious Conference at UCLA. And then a few years ago, the medical center found out I was on campus, and they asked me if I would join the spiritual care committee. And I said, sure, I'd be glad to. And uh, I give presentations to new chaplains on Buddhist patient care and end-of-life issues. 
And so I'll be doing that next month, as a matter of fact. They have a new crop of chaplains at the medical center. And I'll be giving, uh, I think they call it a didactic a presentation. So here I was, this guy that you know didn't quite know what he was going to do. And all of a sudden, I'm doing a whole lot of things that I never thought I would do. And learning all the time about how difficult it is to be a human being. And around every corner, Buddhism for me is being validated. Sorry, Hi. No? Hi, how are you? And your name is? Okay. We're all here now. Thanks, Lyric. You haven't missed anything. It's just the story of my life. And uh, there you go. There's my card. Okay. And uh, so one of the things I noticed about the hospital work was that it's very difficult. You know, I was... I was um, giving a presentation at City of Hope, and they had a 20-year-old woman who was dying of cancer. And they came in during the present, after the presentation asked if I'd go over and talk to her because she was interested in Buddhism. And so I said, sure, I'd be glad to. So I'm walking over to the hospital uh, part of City of Hope, and I asked the person taking me there, I said, does City of Hope mean that there's, this is like the last hope? She said, yeah, that's what it, it means. When people end up there, it's pretty much the last hope they have. Yeah. And so I walked into this room, and I was just taken aback by the present moment experience of being in a hospital room with a terminal patient because there was no future in that room. It was just the present moment experience. That was all that existed in that room. And her mom was living with her. Her bed was in the corner there, and and they lived together. She had Internet access, and so... Um, and a few months later, she was dead. But to be able to go into those situations and experience that and, and to learn uh, has been just a blessing for me. And then I, I've been to the Orange County Coroner's Office twice, got to see dead people. How cool was that? Because, you know, you don't get to see dead people. You can't go see dead people. Nobody wants us to see those realities. You have to be invited and have a badge. And um, so after coming out of the coroner's office, you know, it was like time for lunch, you know, and everybody else is sort of racing around, and it's so quiet in there and peaceful because there's just dead people there. And so to, to be able to go into that situation and then to go out into the world, to drive around with the police department, to go to UCLA and be part of the Buddhist club, to be at the medical center, and to live in a Buddhist community. Um, most of the people I live with aren't Buddhist. Uh, but they, they live there because they want to live in community, or they live there because the price is pretty good. And it's important, I think, for monastics to live in community. The community will always be the last to congratulate you and the first to condemn you. It's just like a family. <laughs> so it keeps your head on straight. You, you don't have a chance to get uh, too high or too low. So there's this wonderful effect about living in community. So that's pretty much uh, all about me. Uh, it, I, it's actually on my website, kusala.info, and if you go to Urban Dharma, which is my Buddhist website, uh, you'll find it there. And I've, I've got a couple things. Um, Buddhist e-books, uh, over 150 e-books on Buddhism for free download. That's on my website. I have a, a domain name called Buddha Books. Dot info. If you go to buddhabooks.info, you will find over 150 free books on Buddhism. 
If you want to hear my podcast, you can go to dharmatalks.info, dharmatalks.info. If you want to learn about Zen and guitar, you can go to zenguitar.info. Find out about that. So this website I created, which is over 1,500 pages now, is something I wanted to put together for Westerners coming to Buddhism who didn't know about Buddhism, wanted access to Buddhism, but wanted, didn't want necessarily a scholarly kind of place to go, but sort of a fun place to go, to have you know, different ideas about things. One of the articles is Meditation on a Coke Can. And it's very good. You wouldn't think that would be on a Buddhist website, but, but it is on Urban Dharma. So I hope you'll take advantage of that. And then I'm going to be doing a web page for this class and have the, the, the talks that I'm taping or, or recording on there. You can download it. And I'll put some, also, I'll put some books up there that I think you might be interested in that would tie into this class. And we're going to go on a journey together. And that's the, really the cool part for me. This has always been a journey. There's no end to it. There is actually no destination. We just keep walking on this path. And so I'm going to share the path with you as I understand it. But I'm going to do it in a way, hopefully, that's sort of interesting. Because I have listened to some people who talk so quietly that I just want to fall asleep when they talk about the Dharma. And we should be raising our voices saying, Hey, you can end your suffering and be happy if you want to. So... I raise my voice occasionally, and I have some interesting stories, perhaps, in, a, in an odd sense of humor. And hopefully all that combined will allow you to understand Buddhism in a comfortable way. So now, let me talk a little bit about the Buddha, who was a very cool guy. 2,500 years ago, he was born, and we have evidence that he did exist. We also have evidence that he was a prince. His dad was a king, his mom was a queen. His dad wanted him to take over the family business, be the next king. Small province, it wasn't a big kingdom, it was actually a small province. Uh, it said he had three palaces. He had a palace in the cool country, the warm country, and the dry country. So when the monsoons would come in, they'd all move to the dry palace. And, and I think that was more just to show you how, how wonderful his life was. He had dancing girls and the best clothes and jewelry. Life was good for him. In the legend story of the Buddha, it said when he was a young fellow, he was at a plowing festival and went into a trance, sort of went into samadhi, and noticed an apple with a worm. And then a bird came down and got the worm. And that sort of indicated to him that life was pretty difficult, even as a worm. You never knew how long you had to live, you know? And... And then we sort of go into where he was like 16 years old. And now at the age of 16, his parents decided it was time for him to get married. He was old enough, and they picked out a, a, his wife for him, who turned out to be one of his cousins, and that's what they did back in those days. And so he got married at 16, and he was happy. She was a wonderful human being, and they lived happily together. But he was starting to feel a, a little panned in. He, hadn't, he wasn't allowed to go out into the streets or have a lot of different kinds of friends. He pretty much was encouraged to stay behind the palace walls. His parents really wanted him to not to see the realities of life. Okay? Sort of like when I go visit Paulus Verdi's high school on the hill. You know? And then I come down and see Hawthorne. I'm going, okay. This sure is the difference. So one day, it said, at the age of 19, 
he got his charioteer, uh, Chana, and said, Chana, can you take me out to the streets of the city? I want to look around. I want to see what all the fuss is about. So Chana took Siddhartha, the future Buddha, with him, and they went to the streets of the city. And this is where it said he saw four things that forever changed his life. He saw the really old person, the really sick person, the really dead person, and the really holy person. Now, you know, when I first heard that story, it was hard for me to believe that he had never really seen an old person, sick person, dead person before. You know? And in a way, we can sort of look at our culture and see that our culture does the same thing his parents did for him. That we encourage really old people to go to homes where they're taken care of. You know? And then only visitors and family get to see them. We encourage people who are really sick to go to hospitals. So only friends and relatives sort of deal with that aspect. And then when people die, we get their bodies and we sort of paint their faces and comb their hair and buy them some new clothes and shoes like they're going someplace, cover them in flowers so we can't smell the decaying flesh, And there's Uncle Max, all laid out. Looks like he's just sleeping. Death ain't bad, we might say to ourselves. Well, isn't it odd that when you read, when I read about the Buddha, it was hard for me to see why he didn't, hadn't seen those things before. And then I looked at my own life, and I'm going, yeah, I don't get to see those things either. I never got to see a lot of dead people until I finally got to the coroner's office. You know, if there's a major accident in the 405, the first thing they do is they cover the body. And then the ambulance comes and you can't see through the windows normally and they stick it in there, you know, and take it off to the mortuary or to the corner. And when we do see the realities of our life, what might come to us is the fact that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. Now, I used to say life was unsatisfactory, but it's not. It's not always unsatisfactory. Life has a lot of good moments. We have loves and joys and happiness happening every day. But under all that joy and happiness is the idea that one day we too will have to get old, one day we too will have to get sick, and one day too we'll have to die. And nobody has ever figured out how not to do that. Even Christ had to die. So, is that a bummer or what? And that's what the Buddha sort of looked at when he saw those, those, those three sights, the sick person, the old person, the dead person. But now on the way back to the palace, he sees the holy person. He sees the ascetic, the yogi, the mendicant, all dressed in white, calm, unaffected by all the suffering the future Buddha had just seen. And he says to Chana, why is that person so relaxed? Look at all the suffering I've seen in the world today. And he is so unaffected. And Chana said, well, he's a holy person. His life is devoted to finding the big answers. And and I think at that moment, it planted a seed in the future Buddha's mind that the religious life was going to be better than the secular life even though he was sort of scheduled to become the next king, that wasn't going to answer the questions he had. And so at the age of 29, he left his wife, 
He left his newborn son named Rahula. Rahula, by the way, means fetter or impediment. He named his son Fetter. Now, I don't know many dads that would do that, but you know what? In the story of the Buddha, it really works well. And here he is, left them behind, went to the edge of the forest, took off all his princely clothes, threw away all his gold jewelry, cut off all his beautiful hair, picked up these rags, tied them together, covered his naked body. And for six years, he practiced asceticism, renunciation, and meditation. He wanted to figure out where suffering came from. Now, as I read this story the first time, I got a little confused because, you know, why did he do that? I mean, I mean, he saw those three figures, granted, but he, he left his wife that he really liked. He left his son, too. And it's not like he didn't believe in God. He was a theist. He believed in the gods of India. He wasn't an atheist. He wasn't an agnostic. He was a theist. He believed in the gods of India. So this is what I imagine happened. I imagine that on a full moon night, the future Buddha went to a, a mound or a hill and looked to the skies and petitioned all the gods of India to step forward and end human suffering. Saying, please, come. I've seen it. I know it's true. I'll be that way too. Please end the suffering. And not one of the gods stepped forward to end the suffering. So he took it upon himself to find the answer to how to end human suffering. That's what I think. And if we were so courageous as to petition the gods today, and I always use plural, not being a monotheist, would they step forward and end human suffering? I don't know. It doesn't seem like it. We keep suffering. So his goal was to figure it out. Why do we have to suffer as human beings? What is suffering? How do you define suffering? And then, most important of all, how do you end suffering? And can it be done? Do we have a chance at it? Or is it an impossibility? So here he was at 29. He was going to venture out to the forest, venture out to the jungles, and figure out the answer. So there he was. Now, it said he did some really drastic things, like he'd have like one meal a day, he wouldn't sleep lying down, he would sleep sitting up in full lotus. During the summer months, he'd sit between four fires, one in each of the four directions, and just feel so uncomfortable and sweat. And I'm thinking, well, this is probably just for the story. People really didn't do that kind of stuff. But then I went to the city of 10,000 Buddhas in Ukiah, California. Chinese Buddhist monastery. If you become a monk or a nun in this monastery, you are not allowed to lie down at night to sleep. You have to sleep sitting in full lotus posture. And you only get one meal a day, and it's vegetarian. And you know what I noticed about all those monks and nuns? Every one of them was really tired. And they were thin. You're right. And, and why would anybody want to do that? They're trying to find out where suffering comes from. They're doing the same ascetic practices that the historical Buddha did. Voluntarily. 
You know, if you if you set this up in a prison, they would they'd say, no way, this is you know inhumane. You can't treat people like this. And these are men and women of all nationalities who have decided they want to follow the ascetic tradition of the historical Buddha. Amazing stuff. There's another monastery, uh, Abhyagiri, mostly Canadians, Americans, and Brits. And these are forest monks who were trained in Thailand by Achan Shah. And now they have their own monastery in Northern California. And they all live in these little kutis, these little small houses, and there's like no lights. And they too have one meal a day, but they get to eat meat too. I got to eat with them one time. And you know they eat out of a bowl? They still use the begging bowl that the Buddha used as he went from house to house begging for food. And you know what's wrong with eating out of a begging bowl? Is all the food goes down to the bottom and gets mixed up. And I had this really cool piece of chocolate cake that kept sliding down into the salad dressing, and I was so (laughs) upset. But I ate it anyway. It still tasted pretty good. So today, in America, in California, we have the opportunity to go to these monasteries and see how the historical Buddha practiced. People are still doing that today. Now, where I live, I'm in downtown Los Angeles. I'm in Koreatown. You know, uh, it's not very ascetic where I live. And uh, we have helicopters and sirens all the time and dogs barking and gangs and graffiti and drug sales. And that's where I live. But we need to have places like that available for people to come and visit too. So I'm like in a city parish as opposed to a monastery out in the forest someplace where all you have to contend with are lions and tigers and bears and poison oak and snakes that want to get you. I sort of prefer the city myself. And I'm loud, too. And when you go to these monasteries, they're all quiet. People speak very softly. And they're very gentle. They're just... And and I sort of like walk in like a wrestler, you know, and I I always feel so out of place in these really quiet monasteries. But Buddhism in America is designed for everybody, depending on what your body type is or your intellect is or devotional practices or ascetic practices. You can find a school or sect of Buddhism to go practice with or at or in. It's very cool. So now here the Buddha is, and he's working really hard, and, and, and at the age of 35, six years later, he achieves nirvana. Nirvana, simply put, is the end of suffering. He figured out how to do it, and he did it. He never had to suffer again as a human being. And it said for 49 days he enjoyed his release from suffering. But at the end of those 49 days, he looked back into the world, and he saw that everybody else was still suffering. So, for 45 years, he went and taught how to end suffering. And he died at the age of 80. So what did he say about suffering? And what is suffering? Can we define it in a simple way? Because when I, when I first thought of suffering, I was really confused. Well, is it, am I hungry? Am I tired? You know, I don't feel good. What is suffering? Where does that come from? 
And so I was giving a presentation in Glendale, California to 7th graders that were studying Buddhism because they just found it in their history books and their teacher asked if I would come down and speak to the class. So I said, sure, it'd be a lot of fun to speak to 7th graders. And at the end of my presentation, one of them, Esmeralda, raised her hand. And I said, yes, Esmeralda. And she stood up and said, you know, Reverend Kusala, I now understand the difference between pain and suffering. Suffering happens when you don't want to have the pain. And I said, Esmeralda, you are right. That's exactly what the Buddha was talking about. Coming to a place of profound acceptance with the way things are. Not needing them to be any different. We suffer when we want things to be different. So he figured out how to accept everything exactly the way it is. In his first talk, after his nirvana, he spoke to five ascetics he had been practicing with, five yogis, who had thought of him as being sort of a dropout, because at one point he wasn't eating anything more than one grain of rice a day. And he almost died. And he said to himself, this is not the way to nirvana. And the other ascetics looked at him and said, ah, he's not going to do it. Look, he copped out. He's going to go eat now. So those five ascetics who sort of ridiculed the Buddha for giving up his extreme ascetic practices saw him in the distance, coming their way. And each one of them stood up and noticed that something was radically different. I imagine the Buddha was glowing. I bet you he had this sort of rainbow aura all around him. And they, and they noticed it right away. And they said, please, please sit down and tell us what your practice is. And today we might say, please sit down and tell us what your religion is. And so he went into what his practice was. And this was the first talk that the new Buddha gave to anyone. It's called the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel talk. And in this talk, he said, I have discovered four universal truths. And the first truth I have discovered is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory because of birth. If we weren't born, we wouldn't get sick. If we weren't born, we wouldn't get old. If we weren't born, we wouldn't die. But we are born, and so those things happen, and there's nothing we can do about it. If that's not bad enough, there are people in this world we don't like, places in this world we don't want to be in, and we find ourselves around those people and in those places far too often. And nothing we can do about it. And then he went on to say, if that's not bad enough, everything in our life that we truly cherish, love, cling to, want to hold on to, will be taken away from us. And the culprit is impermanence and change. Now, he didn't stop there. If he had stopped there, he would have been called a pessimist. He would have been looking at the world and said, ah, this place sucks. But he didn't stop there. He said, the reason it's so unsatisfactory is because we are selfish. Every moment of every day, all we want to do is hold on to the good stuff and push away the bad stuff. 
attraction, aversion. And because we're born with original ignorance, not original sin, we never get it right. So the second truth is, selfish desire makes this world of ours ultimately unsatisfactory. The third truth is nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering. And, more importantly, the end of all future rebirths. When you achieve nirvana, you'll never be reborn again. You'll never have to go through sickness, old age, and death again. But nirvana is unique because it doesn't mean you don't exist. It means you exist and not exist at exactly the same time. And your existence is not caused by birth. Your existence is caused by nirvana. Now, that's such a radical concept that you could exist without being born. And when we get through our four weeks together, hopefully that will make sense to you. And might even be desirable. But it's hard, it's hard to sell this. You know, it's hard to sell, hey, let's never be born again. Because being born is sort of the only thing we know. Because we're born, we have a brain and can think and have past and future. And even though it is uncomfortable a lot of the time, it's very pleasurable the rest of the time. And it's nice to have this body in this world. This body gives us a whole lot of pleasure. You know? As the body gets older, I find it gives me less pleasure, but, but that's life. You know? But yeah, it's having a body and having a mind, being born, what, what a wonderful gift to all of us. And for a Buddhist, we'd say, yeah, because now I can find the Dharma, even in Los Angeles, I can practice the Dharma, and I can achieve Nirvana. And I can't do that if I'm born in some of the other forms of existence. If I'm born in heaven, as, as I might be in a future existence, everything's just the way I want it to be, and I'm not going to change anything. I'm just going to enjoy my heavenly experience. If I'm reborn in hell, for some reason, all I'm going to do is suffer. I'm not going to have the gumption or the clarity to go and practice Buddhism. I'm just going to suffer and wait till that karma gets purified and get the heck out of there. The problem in Buddhism with the heavens and the hells, they're not forever. They're a really long time, but they're not forever. So we might be in heaven for like 100,000 human lifetimes, and then the karma that put us there wears out and we have to leave, and might come back as a human being again. So, see, for a Buddhist, even being reborn in heaven isn't the ultimate answer to happiness because we're going to have to leave sooner or later. So, for a Buddhist, and every sect of Buddhism, every school of Buddhism, the ultimate goal is going to be nirvana, the end of suffering and the end of all future rebirths. Now, before I get to the Eightfold Path, does anybody have any questions? Is it clear so far? Or is it a bit confusing? How about clear? Confusing? Sort of? Okay. Okay. The Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is what we follow to achieve nirvana. The Eightfold Path is 
right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Now, all this stuff is on my website, <laughs> so if you're not a good writer, it's okay. You can go online and find it. You can take those eight path factors and put them into three categories. Personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. In the first category of personal discipline, we have right speech, right action, and right livelihood. The Buddha said, there are four kinds of speech that always increase suffering. Those four kinds of speech are harsh, malicious, false, and gossip or idle chatter. Those four kinds of speech always increase suffering. Now, I'm going to talk a lot about increasing suffering and decreasing suffering, but I'm going to try to not talk about good speech and bad speech. It's more important to call it skillful speech and unskillful speech. And the reason for that is this. In Buddhism, we really don't have evil or ultimate good. Now, I was invited a couple years ago to uh, be on um, public television with Val Savala, and Reverend Schuler was on the panel. Very impressive, imposing man. And there was I. And I think it was maybe shortly after 9-11, and, and he said... He said, for the first time in my life, he said, I know there is evil in this world. You know, and he did it in such a dramatic way. And so Val looked at me and said, Reverend Kusla, what do you think about that? Is there evil in the world? I said, nope, just a bunch of unskillful people. Well, every eye turned to me, and if they could kill me with looks, I would have been dead right there in the spot. But in Buddhism, we really don't have evil. We have unskillful. And it's not based on any kind of commandments or divine lawgiver. It's really connected to suffering. More suffering, less suffering. More suffering, less suffering. I like to say it this way. Evil, if you put a D in front of evil, you got the devil. And if you have good and take one of the O's away, you got God. And we don't have either. So we have unskillful, skillful. More suffering, less suffering. And when we speak unskillfully, we will increase the suffering of those hearing us speak, and ultimately that unsatisfactoriness will come back to us because of karma, cause and consequence. The Buddha said there are three kinds of action that really increase suffering. Killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. Now, one of the aspects of killing that came to me was the fact that it's really hard to be born. You know, if you think of yourself as being a Christian, a Jew or Muslim, this may be your very first time here. If you're a Hindu, you may have done this before. And if you're a Buddhist, it's just another rebirth. But how difficult is it to be reborn as a human being? The Buddha uh, used this metaphor of a one-eyed turtle living in the ocean. And every hundred years, he comes up for a breath of air. 
The chances of him coming up through a wooden yoke that was floating in the ocean are the chances of us being reborn as a human being. So the Buddha, even though he was a bit skeptical about how wonderful it is to be a human being, he did say it was a good and fortunate rebirth and a very difficult one. And if you take someone's life, you're preventing them from re- achieving their full realization. And if they're a Buddhist or a Hindu, they may have to come back and do it again and again and again. I often encourage people, if they want to end killing, to start big. And what I mean by that is this. If we have something in Buddhism called the five precepts, which I'm going to go into great detail on. And the five precepts are training precepts that we take when we become an official Buddhist. The training precepts are to avoid taking life, to avoid taking what is not given, to avoid sexual misconduct, to avoid lying, and to avoid consuming intoxicants to the point of intoxication. And if somebody's practicing those precepts, I encourage them with the first one to avoid taking life, to start big, and to wake up in the morning, do your meditation, and then say to yourself in a very strong voice, today I will not kill any human beings. And leave the house and live your day, and more than likely you will succeed. (laughs) And your confidence will be start increasing. And then you can pick other animals like, you know, elephants or goats or sheep or cows. You know, if you're in, in an urban environment like me, chances are you can go through the whole day without killing any of those either. And when you get really good at not killing, then you start working on the cockroaches and the mosquitoes. Because those are the little guys who we don't even think about as we snap their life away. You know, And in Buddhism, taking any life is going to create a lot of suffering. I had one of the police officers in Garden Grove ask me about that. He said, you're the Buddhist guy, aren't you? And I said, yeah. We're all, all the chaplains wear the same uniform. We have a black uh, polo shirt that says chaplain on it. We have black slacks. We have a black jacket that says chaplain. We have a hat that says chaplain. And one of the reasons we have chaplain all over our body is so the, the bad guys won't shoot us. Uh, but I'm thinking if the bad guy's an atheist, I go first. So far, that hasn't been the case. But he said to me, he said, you know, I've been hired to defend, to serve and defend this, country, uh, this, this city. And I've been authorized to use lethal force. So as a Buddhist, what would you say about that? And, and so I'm thinking about this, and this is a really difficult subject because I don't want him to be confused. I want him to be clear. If he needs to pull his weapon, he's doing it because he's going to shoot somebody. And if he pauses or isn't quite clear on why he's doing it, it his life may be in jeopardy. So I, I paused on this one. And I said to him, never kill anyone out of hatred and anger, only service and duty. And the reason I said that was this. Our intention has a lot to do with the karmic consequences of our speech and our action. His consequences will be lessened if he takes a human life by having the intention of doing it out of service and duty to his community. 
If he does it out of hatred and anger, the consequences go up. There's a famous Zen story. Samurai warrior. He's going to seek revenge. The shogun was killed. And, and his job as a samurai was to protect him. He failed. So now he has to go kill the person who killed the shogun. And it took him a year to find where this guy was living. And one morning at 4 o'clock, he knocks on the door. The door opens, and it's him, the one he was looking for. And he pulls his sword and then puts it back in the sheath and walks away. And the reason he did that was because he was angry at the person he was about to kill, and he couldn't kill him out of anger. So he had to wait for another day. And that's sort of like the police story. So, as a Buddhist, taking life is always wrong, but sometimes it's necessary. And what a paradox to work with and to live with. And if you have a billion ants in your kitchen, you may have to kill a few. You just to get rid of them, because your life will be very uncomfortable as you try to make lunch or dinner with a million ants in your kitchen. And then you might want to put some like little cinnamon or something so they won't cross over and get in the kitchen. <coughs> if you have a mosquito, you might want to get up at night and catch it and take it outside. But if you're not clear, if you're sleepy, don't want to get out of bed, you may just decide to kill it and go back to sleep. We take these precepts as a Buddhist to wake up. We want to wake up to our life and how our life is in relationship to everything else and how whatever we do, say, or think affects everything around us. And these precepts, this eightfold path, allows us to wake up to that fact. So in the not-to-take-life, there's a lot of philosophical and just practical stuff we're going to go through. Now, taking what is not given is the next part. So, have you ever been in a restaurant and just grabbed the ketchup without asking if you could use it? I bet we all have. Well, for a Buddhist who's really practicing, they would ask the waitress, is it okay to use the ketchup? Not to take anything that wasn't given. If you are around a Theravada monk, never touch their food. Because if you touch their food, Say they have a wonderful apple and you just want to admire it and you pick it up and you say to yourself, my, my, what a wonderful apple. You're a lucky monk. And you set it down. Ownership has been transferred to you and that monk cannot eat it until you give it back to him. You have to offer the apple back to him. That's how these rules get sometimes. But that sure does keep you awake, doesn't it? <laughs> and this thing about ownership, too. You know, back in the 80s, I used to have a, a blue... Opal Manta, two-door, four-on-the-floor. To me, it was like a Mercedes. It was so cool. 3700 bucks out the door. And I would just buzz around. And one day, as I was about to go to work, I noticed somebody had broken into my car, taken my cassette radio right out of the dashboard. And was I disappointed. I'd only been meditating for a couple of years, and I got angry. I was really angry. And I went over to my car and I said, Car, who owns you? Aren't I making the payments? Aren't you mine? 
And my car said nothing in response. And at that moment, I had a deep insight that I really didn't own it. I was just using it until somebody wanted it more than I did. Oh. So ownership is an illusion at one level, but a very powerful one because we're encouraged to own things. Because owning things means we have to buy them, and it's good for the economy. If you take something from someone who thinks they own it, you will create suffering in their life. Sexual misconduct. This is a great uh, topic for high schools because everybody in high schools are so confused about this. You know, I I'm glad I was young when I was young because things were well defined. You know, uh, the uh, 1956 TV series Superman with George Reeves is now available on DVD, and that was one of my favorite TV shows when I was a little guy. I used to sit next to my dad. And we'd watch Superman. And around 1957-58, it went to color. Of course, nobody had a color TV set, but, but now if you have the DVD, you can watch it in color. And so I've got a couple of those seasons now on DVD, and I'm sort of reliving my childhood watching those. But what I noticed about Superman, there was no question who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. No question at all. It was really easy to watch and understand that TV show. And when I look at sexual misconduct in 2006, that's a pretty difficult subject. Because what is appropriate and what is inappropriate? And lawmakers and politicians are all raising their flags, saying this is good and this is bad and we're not going to do this, so let's all do this. So this is what I find Buddhism says about sexual misconduct. That sex is wonderful. It's the reason we're all here. Nothing at all wrong with sex. The problem with sex, though, according to Buddhism, is the desire for sex. Because that desire creates suffering. And sexual activity will never ultimately satisfy the desire for sex. And when I figured that out, I was really disappointed. But can understand why Viagra sells as well as it does. Because we never have enough sex. We're always going to have that desire to have more sex. It can't be satisfied. So you might say to yourself, well, maybe I'll become a nun or a monk and be celibate, and then I won't have to suffer. But if you desire not to have sex, you suffer too. So there's no easy way out unless it's nirvana, which is the end of desire that creates suffering. And if you're in nirvana, like the Buddha was, you don't want to have sex. You know, he was a father and a husband, and then he became the Buddha, and he achieved nirvana, and he lost all his desire, and he never had sex again. And I'm thinking to myself, if I lost my desire for sex... Why would I want to have it? What could I do with that time and that energy and that money? I could do a lot of things. So, as a monk or a Buddhist nun, we take celibacy as one of our vows. And, and it's not because it's a penalty. It's because we ultimately want to be free. 
And we want to be free in a simple way. You're not going to have a simple life if you're married, have kids, car payments, mortgage payments. It's not simple. And can you imagine if you're a monk and have a wife and two kids, and you're giving a Dharma talk at a temple, and then you say, oh, by the way, could you just leave a little more money in the kitty? I want to take the wife out to the movies tonight. It's not going to work. So when we became a monk or a nun, we decided that um, we needed to take that vow so we could be supported through generosity. But people are only going to be generous up to a point. And so for 2,500 years, monks and nuns have lived in an economy of generosity. And the vows they take help them live in a simple way which is the way all enlightened people will live once they achieve enlightenment. But until you achieve enlightenment, you need to be told and reminded how enlightened people live. One of my favorite... Is enlightenment the same as nirvana? No, okay. it's not. Okay. I just, I'm sorry for interrupting. No, no, that's fine. Please. I've always been confused You want me to tell you what the difference is? Okay. We've got about 25 minutes. Does anybody want to take a little break before we continue? We're, we're just rolling right along. Okay. Well, actually, no, we're over at 9.30, so that's right. So we've got about another hour to go. Five-minute break for anyone before we get into enlightenment and nirvana? Rest of, okay, good. Let's do that. I'll sit down, take a breather, and then we'll get to enlightenment and nirvana. That's a great question. Well, that's it. That was Class 1, Part 1 of the extension class I taught at Loyola Marymount University. The title was Integrating Buddhist Practices into Everyday Life. hope you found it interesting, and I hope you found it useful. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts, uh, talks I've given and interviews I've done, please visit dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. Plenty of free ebooks to download at buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. If you'd like to contact me, I'll get back with you as soon as I can. Sometimes I get behind, but my email address is kusala at urbandharma.org. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.